patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 66 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Talosky. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you are all excited for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. Hope you're all looking forward to some delicious food and spending valuable time with your families. As a quick reminder, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or you can subscribe to our email list. I highly recommend that you subscribe to our email list so that you can get the latest notifications when episodes come out, any special news and announcements that will come our way. Make sure to do that when you're finished listening to this episode. This week's episode is... And episode 68, which is two weeks from the release of this one, will be parts one and two respectively. So make sure you stay subscribed and look out for episode 68, which is a continuation of this week's conversation. Now I'd like to introduce our two guests for today. The first is Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris. Sinclair Harris serves as LMI's Director of Business Development for the Department of the Navy. He retired as a Rear Admiral after a 34-year career in the U.S. Navy. He has commanded at every level from ship commanding officer to fleet commander. His last assignment was as the Vice Director for Operations to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He publicly serves as President of the National Naval Officers Association National Vice President of the Navy League of the United States, and on several other nonprofit boards supporting sea services and their families. Our second guest today is Mr. John Kaskin. Mr. Kaskin was a member of the Senior Executive Service for over 25 years. He retired with 37 years of government service as the duties of the Director of Strategic Mobility and Combat Logistics Division the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, in June 2012. He is now a part-time senior fellow at the Center for Naval Analyses. Mr. Kaskin has a BSEE from the University of Pennsylvania in 1971, a Master of Science degree in Engineering from Harvard University in 1977, and a second Master of Science degree in Shipping and Shipbuilding Management, as well as a professional degree of Ocean Engineering from MIT in 1979. Uh, Mr. Kasky is a member of the National Defense Transportation Association, Propeller Club of the United States, Fellow of the Society of Naval Architects and Marine Engineers, Life Member of American Society of Naval Engineers, and was a gold medal recipient. Association of the U.S. Navy, U.S. Naval Institute, and the Navy League, at which he currently serves as National Vice President for Legislative Affairs and the co-chair of the Merchant Marine Affairs Committee. He was recently appointed as a member of the National Academy's Marine Board, and he was awarded the SCS Presidential Rank of Meritorious Executive in 1999 and 2009, 
and Navy Distinguished Civilian Service Medal in 2012. I am very excited now to welcome our two guests, Mr. John Kaskin and Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris. Thank you both so much for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. All right, well, let's kick off with a bit about the overview of some of the national security issues we're dealing with in the maritime industry, and really just get a sense of what we're looking at here with the big picture. John, I'm going to start with you on this question here. What are some of the top issues that you think are particularly relevant when it comes to this bridge between the U.S. maritime industry and our national security focus at this time? Well, I think the the primary concern uh, that I have had uh, for the last uh, couple of decades is that we don't have enough uh, ships in the U.S. Merchant Marine to provide the strategic sea lift capability and capacity that we would need to support uh, a major uh, contingency uh, in the Pacific, uh, particularly in a contested environment. Uh, and you know, we're basically our back to a situation where we have a peer competitor in a contested environment and we have nowhere near the capability and capacity that we had at the end of the Cold War. So lack of the U.S. shipping, uh, owned shipping and uh, U.S. flag shipping, uh, as well as the sea lift capacity that we would require from it, as well as the the government fleets, is way inadequate to, to meet the requirement. The second concern I have is our shipbuilding industrial base. Uh, again, uh, it's less than a quarter uh, of what it was at the end of the Cold War. Even uh, 20 years ago, we had 20 major shipyards, we're down to eight. And we don't even have the repair capability uh, to handle battle damage repair uh, that was, would be required uh, because of loss of all of that shipbuilding capacity. And the third is uh, merchant mariners. Uh, because of the decline of the, to the U.S. Uh, shipping industry to 180 ocean-going ships or insufficient mariners to crew up uh, the reserve fleets uh, in a protracted war, which is what we would expect to have to uh, happen uh, if we went into conflict uh, uh, in the Pacific. So those are our three major concerns I, I have uh, on what is no longer available in the U.S. uh, maritime industry to meet our national security requirements. Excellent. I'm going to turn to Sinclair now to ask if if there's anything you'd like to add to those three points that John had just made uh, and or any other issues that you think are also relevant to our conversation today and really the national security landscape that we're facing nowadays. Well, thank you, uh, Sherman. And I completely agree with uh, John on the areas that he emphasized. I would capture that, uh, all of them, under one phrase, a maritime nation. America has lost its mojo and, and the spirit of being a maritime nation. And we are. And we can see it every day. We look on the news and see the reports of the uh, ships are stacked up outside of L.A. Harbor and, you know, threats of no Christmas this year because Santa's uh, reindeer actually rides on the waves more than anything else. Uh, And and our lack of uh, true emphasis as 
a maritime nation and getting people to serve, either as longshoremen or merchant mariners, having the number of ships needed to uh, prevail against uh, the threats of others in times of our economy, and, and allowing our supply chain to be so doggone fragile. We have to uh, remember that we are a maritime nation and we've got to work towards it. It's not something that is a given. The other thing I would bring up, and I would give kudos to our new Secretary of the Navy, uh, the Honorable Carlos del Toro, and he captures his concerns as the four C's. And for those of you who've not uh, identified the four C's or read any of the things he's put out, it's all about China, it's all about culture, it's all about climate change, and it's all about COVID. And each one of those has been certainly uh, had a deleterious effect on our national security and certainly have hurt ourselves as a maritime nation. Excellent. And Sinclair, I'm going to stick with you uh, for the next question here. Uh, could you emphasize, emphasize a little bit more about that second part that you mentioned about some of those challenges? Uh, particularly, I guess we'll start with COVID first, um, since that's still going on as the pandemic. Uh, obviously, the the scale of that, it changes a lot. And certainly, I think we're in a much better position, obviously, than we were a year ago, or certainly 18 months ago when the pandemic started. Uh, just give us a bit more detail about how COVID has affected some of those uh, challenges of I guess maybe recognizing or meeting up to the challenge of making the U.S. as that maritime nation as we should be going into the future. Well, I think COVID um, has touched every single aspect of American life and, and life around the world. I think it has contributed to the uh, a shortage that we had. We had a shortage going into COVID of uh, merchant mariners and uh, stevedores, and I think it's made it worse uh, because, quite frankly, a lot of them were older and 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 disproportionately affected by uh, COVID. Uh, it has certainly made the screening that has to happen uh, to operate safely more difficult. Uh, and in terms of operations of our ships at sea, uh, I would tell you that I, I believe that uh, the fleet has done an incredible job of uh, sustaining itself through uh, the COVID crisis, but at great cost. And I think you can see that with the aircraft carrier uh, uh, issue that happened last year that took up so much of the news. So I think it's touched every single aspect of uh, life across our country and in the military and, and certainly in the Navy. And John, I'm going to turn to you now, and I want to touch upon the first point that you made, which is about the lack of ships, and maybe tying that a bit into that second point about industrial capacity. Um, but what can you tell us about how we got to this point of of seeing these two challenges, the lack of ships, uh, the limited industrial capacity? We've often hear, heard a lot about uh, the changing economy over the last few decades with regards to manufacturing. Um, you look at various parts of in the, in the United States. I'm applying to a school for a PhD program in the Norfolk area, and I know that you know, that area is a big shipbuilding area. What can you tell us about how we got to the point where we are today when it comes to lack of ships as well as the limited shipping industrial capacity we're in now? Well, I think um, it was... It, 
it's a reasonable outcome of what we thought would be the case after the end of the Cold War. We thought at the, at the end of the Cold War, we would no longer need to worry about uh, a major compare competitor uh, that would be contesting us. Uh, we were hoping that uh, China was going to, as through its entry in the World Trade Organization, uh, would become a, a friendly tr uh, trader in, in, in economic competition on basis of the, uh, of the world order of rules that uh, we had established uh, uh, under the OECD uh, and well as uh, the United Nations. And so that we were hoping that uh, with uh, China's growth, uh, its uh, government uh, would uh, become uh, more amenable to a, uh, a uh, I can't say a democratic, but more on uh, agreeing with uh, the values uh, that uh, the rest of the world uh, had endorsed. Uh, and we thought through globalization that uh, we would uh, take advantage of uh, a comparative advantage uh, that we would, uh, if countries could uh, produce goods and services at less cost than we would, could, uh, then we would take advantage of it and would, we would be able to trade uh, areas where we had comparative advantage. And that we really didn't feel that there were any national security justification for maintaining the capabilities that we had developed uh, during the Cold War. I mean, we got, we sold off our strategic stockpiles so that we wouldn't we didn't think that we really needed to maintain that, uh, that those critical materials uh, in, that we would need in time of a mobilization if we were going to fight the Soviet Union. Um, and we thought shipping, we could get it at the lowest cost. And we thought uh, uh, getting ships overseas uh, at the lowest cost uh, and using services from other countries was fine because we didn't see envision that there was going to be uh, the future that we are now currently experiencing. So, I mean, we, with respect to the military, we went to uh, becoming as efficient as possible in uh, eliminating any resiliency and redundancy uh, in, the, in the capacity and capability that we had because we didn't really expect that we would need it. So, I mean, it was an understandable outcome, uh, I think, um, and that we basically thought we didn't need an insurance policy or more than what we had were investing in because we didn't perceive uh, that we were going to come into the situation where we may have to have a, to call upon our insurance. And just to follow up on that, John, in your personal experience, you've obviously spoken to a lot of people from the shipping industry. What have they been saying about the the change in the world economy and how that's affected workers, affected customers, affected shipping. I mean, we'll touch upon a little bit about the, the backlog that we see uh, right near the, the port of Long Beach and port of Los Angeles. Uh, how have these experiences shaped you know, the urgency for the issues that which you've raised so far? Well, I mean, with respect to the U.S. Uh, flag merchant marine, uh, it, we basically outsourced uh, most of it. The number of uh, U.S. own companies that op that uh, uh, that actually own ships uh, without having a parent subsidiary are almost uh, down to uh, none, except for the ships in the Jones Act. Uh, again, it was uh, if you're uh, a international ship operator, 
Uh, you will, if necessary, have ships under U.S. flag if you're given a subsidy to operate them under U.S. flag. But otherwise, you're going to get the cheapest labor you can find worldwide. You'll get the ships built at the cheapest place you can worldwide. Uh, and you'll operate them as, uh, at, at least cost uh, that you can uh, under uh, flags uh, of uh, international shipping registries uh, that are at low cost because uh, you're competing with other shipping companies that are doing the same. And so, uh, you know, from their perspective, uh, it was a race to the bottom. Uh, and in many cases, a lot of the ship operators uh, were making marginal uh uh, returns on their uh, investment, in most cases, not covering their ca cost of capital. That's how the shipping industry operates uh, in a global competitive environment uh, with no uh, restrictions. Uh, and uh, But however, when you do do that, uh, you eliminate uh, uh, any resiliency again, just the same as I was mentioning with the military. military you get rid of your resiliency in your uh, and your redundancy. And so when the system gets perturbed, like we have experienced uh, recently, uh, it creates a, a disaster effect because there's no uh, slack in the system to be able to accommodate those per perturbances. So I think what you'll see uh, or what we're experiencing now uh, is exactly what people would forecast if you let the system uh, proceed on its own without uh, either international or uh, government interferences. Absolutely. I'm going to turn to Sinclair now. I want to ask a bit more about kind of a similar question to what I asked John a little bit earlier, which is uh, this whole idea of the changing, I guess, not just the changing economy in the world, but also the changing security environment. John, I mentioned earlier about you know, the kind of the end of the Cold War up to this point. What can you tell us about the change in the uh, maritime security landscape uh, with regards to some of the points that John has made, um, and particularly, I guess, in reference to the U.S. Navy and really how the U.S. government has approached this idea of what U.S. maritime strategy should look like after the end of the Cold War. Well, I think it's, it's been pretty well documented that we took um, a great pause uh, following uh, World War II um, and the Cold War, uh, where, you know, we weren't building up a 600-ship Navy. That's when I joined the Navy, you know, to make sure that we were able to win against uh, the threat from uh, Soviet Russia. Um, after the Cold War ended, uh, we took a pause. We took a break. We took our knee uh, 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 took a knee, if you will, as a country in terms of maritime operations, what we're going to invest. We had a number of different strategies that we went through. 9-11 happened. And of course, the focus of 9-11 was about uh, going after terrorists. And, and then we get into a nation building. I'm not going to even go into there, but that's what happened. Um, all these things uh, took away from our the importance and the emphasis we had on maritime operations and, and the like. And, and we didn't really see any competitors out there. All the while, what's happening? China is saying, well, it's our time again. We're going to build up from here. Uh, we, we, were, we were important before. We're going to be important again on the world stage. And the, one of the best ways to do that, 
do that is at sea and with very few restrictions and a government that significantly uh, uh, pays for uh, the infrastructure and for the structure and the platforms uh, to to build up a Navy quickly. They've been getting after it while we've been, you know, just taking a knee. Uh, I think that's what happened in, in simple terms. Yes. And about the shipbuilding capacity, because I know that you've also worked in this area too, or focused on particular areas of where we can build that capacity. Uh, what can you tell us about the ch- challenges that face America when it comes to the shipbuilding capacity? You mentioned earlier about how China has been working on this. What have we been doing um, or what have we not been doing really is kind of the better question. Um, and how uh, how is that kind of having effect on our national security posture in the Indo-Pacific and around the world? Well, I'm, I'm going to start, but I'm going to ask John to weigh in here because we talked about this uh, with our colleagues many, many, many times. So when I um, joined the Navy, we had many yards that were building ships. Today, I think we may have five uh, that are really building capital ships that can support a Navy. That means that the capacity to build and maintain a Navy, which is in our Constitution, uh, has been diminished. Um, same time, you know, the number of sailors and the merchant mariners has gone down as well. But uh, we, we, we stopped building uh, enough ships so that the industry had a clear and unambiguous uh, demand signal uh, on the ships that would be needed to maintain the fleet. Uh, This has caused uh, us to lose capacity because companies are not in business just, you know, out of their own, you know, you know, niceness or ability to be patriots. They're all patriots, but they have to bottom line that they've got to adjust to. And they that requires some pipeline, some demand signal that they can invest and continue to invest to modernize, uh, which we haven't done. One of the big problems we see right now is in our public yards. Uh, if you Google the letters S-I-O-P, SIOP, you will get enough videos and articles that will make your eyes water about what's happened to our four public yards that do the work of our on our nuclear submarines and aircraft carriers as one example. But we've had we've had a problem with the uh, commercial ones as well because they need to have a consistent demand for that modernization and building to go along. And we have done it. The Birch Marine Act in 1936, which was uh, passed uh, to get us prepared for World War II, specifically focused on programs that would help uh, maintain the shipbuilding industrial base. And one primary program was called the Construction Differential Subsidy Program, which would pay up to 50% of the cost of a ship built in the United States uh, that would operate in foreign trade. Um, When the Reagan administration came into office, uh, that program was disestablished. And it was producing... I think uh, in the vicinity of ten, at least 10 ships a year that were being built uh, for that program. And the thought was under the Reagan administration that the buildup of the Navy from to the 600-ship Navy would keep the shipbuilding industrial base busy 
uh, and that uh, uh, there wouldn't be any real shrinkage of the industrial base. However, um, that's not what happened. Uh, the, after the end of the, the Cold War, we shrank the, the U.S. Uh, Navy to half of what uh, the, the Reagan buildup was. And the commercial shipbuilding industry um, was all dependent on the, on the Jones Act, which we'll talk about later, um, also ran out of work because it had been recapitalized. So there were several years where there was no uh, work going into the commercial shipyards. And those commercial shipyards are also the ones that can build naval auxiliaries, amphibious ships, uh, and the other uh, smaller combatants. Uh, less complex ships. And so there was a, a vacuum there uh, that we weren't able to build up because at that point in time, uh, Korea became uh, involved in shipbuilding uh, and later on uh, China, and they were starting to produce ships at such a low cost that there was no way for U.S. shipyards uh, to compete uh, under the, on a price basis. Uh, so uh, when we lost the capacity with, through the loss of subsidies and then the reduction of government work uh, as well as commercial work, that capacity was lost because uh, there was no program there to, to maintain it. And um, you know, that's what, what has resulted. And so there's, we're still in that same situation. Uh, there are no government programs uh, to, re, uh, to increase input uh, into those uh, shipyards to uh, maintain them, even the ones that we have today. Uh, some of them are right on the cusp of going out of business because there's a lack of work uh, of the uh, types that would be necessary to sustain them. Uh, and there are, you know, there are options uh, to be programmatically that uh, could be put into play to reverse that situation, but they're going to cost money. I mean, what? Much of the capability and capacity that we had in the past, like the strategic stockpiles, all were uh, were national security investments, and that's what would be required in the future if we wanted to buy the buy back that capability and capacity. Absolutely, we'll absolutely touch upon the Jones Act a little bit later because uh, that's such an important piece of legislation uh, that still has so much value, so much weight today. Uh, but John, I want to ask you something about the current economic environment and how the challenges of nowadays as we're moving through the pandemic. You know, we've got labor shortages, we have uh, supply chain problems. We obviously touched upon the the visuals of the, all those ships backed up at uh, the port of LA and Long Beach. It's not just that port too. It's, it's really all across. We're seeing also, even if you look uh, on the ground, we're not even having enough truck drivers to be able to haul these containers. My question to you is what sort of challenges is the current economic conditions putting on the shipping industry and how does that hinder some of the issues that you raised about our shipping shipbuilding capacity uh, through for, not just really through COVID, uh, but through the many, many decades uh, up until at this point. Well, I mean, the, the current situation we are experiencing now is, is an international problem. It's not a, a U.S. Um, shipping problem because uh, U.S. shipping uh, makes up less than, uh, well, around 1% of the international trade that comes in and out of the United States. 
Uh, and if those ships are carrying military cargoes, they'll get priority for load and offload at uh, at the ports. Um, but there's so few of them, uh, it really is uh, minuscule uh, in comparison. So, I mean, we didn't have a lot of shipping out there in any case. So, um, so the impact of, you know, the reason that we're having the problem now is, is multifaceted. Uh, One is uh, the ports are actually uh, moving more cargo than they had last year. Um, so it isn't that they don't have enough uh, capability and capacity to move the cargo. It's just, as you mentioned, after they get it uh, into the port, uh, moving it inland uh, and releasing the chassis and containers. I mean, it's a very complex situation that the administration's attempting to address, but it isn't the, the U.S. shipping industry uh, that, is, that is really the, the, the issue. The, the international shipping industry, uh, as I mentioned before, established a, a pipeline that was operating with a very little slack. I mean, uh, because of the elimination of, of uh, price fixing and conferences, the number of carriers uh, had reduced over the last 20 years to a fraction of what there were uh, before. And without, uh, with fewer uh, lines and they're in, and they're in uh, conferences, uh, there's just not enough excess capacity to be able to, again, take a, uh, to accommodate the perturbances. And one of the perturbances is the, uh, the increase in domestic consumption. Uh, because of COVID, uh, which is uh, hopefully a temporary factor, a lot less money was being used in services and uh, much more in, in, in goods. And so there's, I just saw something today that said uh, that China had uh, the, the greatest surplus they've ever had in the last month. So, I mean, they're produ- they're, even with all the impact that they're having overseas, they're still producing more goods that are shipping across the Pacific uh, than we had in previous years. So, you know, there's plenty of shipping there. The, the problem is, is that a lot of that capacity is being lost because it's, it's sitting there outside these ports. And when ships don't move, uh, they're not productive. And so you've lost 10 or 20% of your capacity because the ships are waiting two weeks to offload off of LA Long Beach. It only takes two weeks to go across the Pacific. So you can see what what all of this uh, has overall in the shipping industry. So I I guess I am not I'm not uh, in, I'm indirectly saying that uh, that uh, the the issues that we're uh, dealing with now uh, are a cascade. It's probably the perfect storm uh, of what you could have uh, of all happening at once. And the system was never never developed uh, and had the uh, the excess capacity to to accommodate that. It was designed not to have it. Exactly. I'm just imagining some of those, some of that fresh food coming from uh, other parts of the world just going bad on on these containers. Must just must be. I mean, just as an example of how you know, when you when you are waiting for so long, running against the clock all the time, and now you're always behind, and now the clock is always, just always ahead of you. Um, Sinclair, I wanted to turn to you now, and this is actually a good transition, I think, to our second part of this episode here. And really, I want to look more at our the challenges that we're facing when it comes to putting together a solid maritime strategy when it comes to the U.S. and Navy's ability to 
counter and compete uh, with China, especially in the Indo-Pacific. I'll just point to one story here and I'll turn to you. I I read a story from the Associated Press today about these satellite images that show that China has essentially been building these mock-ups of a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier and destroyer in uh, a desert. And people are speculating that that is some kind of indication that the Chinese really do mean what they say when they say that they want to be the predominant power in the Indo-Pacific and ultimately the world. What can you share with us about China's military buildup and what really has changed so much in terms of their posture in the Indo-Pacific? And what, I guess, we, if I may ask also, what have we been lacking in terms of a solid enough focus, I should say refocus, since you mentioned that pause earlier, um, that focus that we should be having in the Indo-Pacific to counter these challenges as China's military gets built up? Well, this this uh, subject could take us days to unpack in any way that, that would make a lot of sense. And I would I would ask that uh, anybody who's really interested in understanding the answer uh, take a chance, uh, take time to read uh, some of the articles that have been put out by organizations such as the Center for Naval Analysis uh, or the Naval War College, uh, where you've got really, really great thinkers and writers who have talked about this agnosium. Hey, look, the bottom line is this. Uh, the Chinese have got no restrictions on the buildup of their fleet. And and they see uh, the, uh, the operations of the United States fleet going through the international waters uh, as a violation of their territorial waters, which is incorrect. Uh, but that's how they see the world. And, and they see the United States working with our partners Japan, South Korea, Australia, and the like, as as impinging on their territorial freedoms, uh, which again is incorrect. Uh, but that's how they see the world, and and when you have that as a mindset and understand that the Chinese uh, have a more holistic, uh, quite frankly, a strategy in terms of exercising. Uh, today they call it uh, their One Belt Road Initiative, or Be- I'm sorry, Belt and Road Initiative. They, they took the one out of it. Um, when 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 you see that they've got no problem moving the funds and the people and doing whatever they want to do uh, in order to support the capability to dominate both economically and militarily uh, to support their economic. Uh, uh, ambitions, it makes it very hard, you know, for the United States, where we kind of go up and down in what we're we're funding. Now, the military has, for a long time, I've been retired for six years, and long before I ever got out, uh, has been talking, especially the Navy, about the Pacific and a pivot to the Pacific and putting more emphasis on the Pacific and having more of our fleet operations there and the different exercises that we do, but. In terms of the growth of the uh, PLN Navy and and how they work in concert with their Coast Guard 
and they work in concert with their fishing fleet, which you can see right off the coast of our neighbors in South America all the time uh, and other places. Uh, they, they've got a very holistic strategy and plan, and they continue to press forward, you know, with that mindset um, that uh, makes it more and more difficult for the United States to operate, even as we put more emphasis on the Pacific. I, I don't know if any of that's clear, if, if I'm making it clear, but it, it's a very complex uh, uh, challenge that our military has in total and our partners and allies have with us in, in trying to work uh, with and around China as they build up their military, they design and build islands in the sea, and they militarize them. Excellent. And I want to ask you about the Chinese psyche, because that's something that's very interesting, because we always want to try and evaluate the threat of an adversarial nation and power, but it's not always easy to do that when you have cultural differences, when for so long people are so focused on the economic side, when they don't look at and see how a nation thinks or how they see the world. Uh, Sinclair, what what would you say has been lost about or misunderstood most about the Chinese government and how they think when it comes to this holistic side of things? And if you can give any examples of that, that would be great as well. I, I tell you, this this is a, be a, a kind of hard one for me to uh, explain in a absolutely correct way because I'm, I do not count myself as a China expert. But I would tell you that I think that we do a lot of mirror imaging where, you know, we in the West think that everybody thinks the same way about things that we do. And I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that uh, from whatever I've read, you know, there's any number in, in China that feel that for about a century, uh, they were embarrassed by how Westerners uh, were impinging on Hong Kong, mainland China, and, and, and took away from the prosperity and the place that they had in the world before that. And they're, and they're, they're, they're just trying to correct the record you know, and get back to that power. And they're doing it again across all aspects of of a nation's power, diplomatically, militarily, through information and economics, all at the same time. Those are really good points. I absolutely agree. John, did you have something to add to that? You no, know, there have been a lot of folks in this country that really have been aware of the Chinese psyche. It's just a question as whether the policymakers. We're reading what they had to say. Uh, I did a book review uh, for the Society of Naval Architects and Marine Engineers called Red Star Over the Pacific, uh, China's Rise and Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. And what it is, is uh, it's by Toshio Shihara and James R. Holmes. And what it is, is a compilation of open source literature, basically from the time of Mao to today, on what the Chinese strategy was uh, and, and has been, and it's been continuous. The only thing that has prevented them from executing the strategy that we're seeing today is they didn't have the resources to accomplish it. With the buildup of their economy, they've been able to execute a strategy that has been stated in their open source writings for decades. So 
it isn't that we aren't aware of where they are wanting to go and have been uh, and the path that they've been following is that we've been ignoring it uh, at a policy uh, level. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, we're unfortunately uh, having to now ha to take uh, catch up on uh, having lost that bubble, as Sink uh, mentioned before. Uh, we had our focus on uh, fighting ground wars and terrorists while the Chinese were continuing the buildup that was written in this book. Yes, and I do think the book, which seems so interesting, I do think that it really complements the wealth of knowledge that we have here in the United States. And we need to take advantage of that and use it as part of the policymaking process. I hope that policymakers all around will take note and be able to take this into account when they're making those critical decisions. Understanding the psyche of the nations we deal with every single day, super, super important in foreign policy. Turning back to Sinclair, one thing that bothers me a lot is that we have something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which essentially says that we will defend Taiwan. It is not an independent nation, but it's also not part of China. And this strategic ambiguity comes into play. The problem is we've seen so many deficiencies in our shipbuilding capacity and industrial capacity, not to mention the strategic interests that have changed over time. How in the world are we even supposed to uphold the Taiwan Relations Act if we don't even have that maritime capacity to deal with an emergency situation like an invasion of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which we don't want, but it's something that we definitely need to consider as a potential possibility. Well, you asked a sixty-four dollar question there, Sherman, and uh, and inside of the Pentagon, inside of DOD, and the international community that concerns itself about the Pacific, the conversation about Taiwan goes on and on and on. Um, and look. We, we believe that the people of Taiwan uh, deserve the autonomy that they fought for when you know, the two uh, split apart. Uh, we believe that uh, Taiwan has, has made a significant investment in their defense, and we continue to support that um, through the years. Uh, as China got to the point where they could overwhelm Taiwan, uh, some would probably tell you, yeah. Um, will they be, or will they be there soon? Uh, for certainly, because they continue to build up. The question is, will it be such a bloody mess that uh, China would uh, have to pull back um, if they started this fight? How much does China want Taiwan as a whole? and undisturbed so they get all the manufacturing and all the capability that comes economically uh, uh, and industrially from uh, a China, uh, a Taiwan. Um, and, and what are the things we can do to curtail that or make it so that the uh, people in Beijing do not believe that today is their day to start that invasion of uh, Formosa, of Taiwan? Um, th these are hard, hard questions to answer. And I don't know that there are any easy answers there, but I know that we, the United States, uh, continue to to work diplomatically, uh, work to support 
them in different ways militarily uh, and try to walk that fine line uh, between support of an ally and, you know, going to blows uh, with China. And Sinclair, what do you think about some of these diplomatic successes that we've had with Taiwan? And I know that this is the diplomacy side, not necessarily on the military military side, but I do think that there's this there, you know, we do need to ha- have as many sources of power as we can to achieve objectives. Uh, when I say successes, I mean things like the Taiwan Travel Act, which allows uh, diplomats and even, I believe, uh, even members of the National Security Council, I guess, or even uh, people from the Pentagon. We've had people from the Pentagon uh, go over to Taiwan and meet with their uh, with Taiwanese counterparts. What would you say about some of these successes and how it reflects any changes in terms of the the urgency as well as the willingness for policymakers and those in the national security realm to be able to get ready for um, for whatever challenges that come across in the Indo-Pacific? Well, well frankly, I'd be more positive about the, the continued increase in diplomatic and engagement efforts between the United States and Taiwan. As I uh, have the same feeling with our other allies, South Korea, with Vietnam, with the Philippines, with Australia, for sure. Uh, you know, China likes its neighbors nervous, and, and we like our neighbors strong. And we have been working to help strengthen those around uh, China, which really don't want to be put under the thumb of uh, the PRC. So I think that more engagement is better uh, and, and they're diplomatic. Uh, they help information-wise correct the record, you know, make sure they know that we are we're there for them and that we, the international community of which the United States is still uh, uh, significant in the leadership of is with them. I think it's I think it's critically important and, and it's a positive sign that we've begun making more gestures like this uh, that would hopefully cause China to hold back on any kinetic options or other things. But you do see them flying their aircraft into the areas closer and closer to the uh, the, air, the the territorial airspace of of uh, Taiwan. So that's a concern. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude the first part of our conversation with John and Sinclair about U.S. maritime strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Part two will be coming out on episode 68. So make sure you subscribe to our email list and to this program so you don't miss a single episode. To all the Americans listening to this program, safe travels and have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Have a great rest of your day and a fantastic Thanksgiving week. Remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.